So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. May Jesus Christ be praised and glorified both now and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Claiming to be inspired by a piece of graffiti in the men's room of the old Pecan Street Cafe in Austin, the theoretical physicist John Archibald Wheeler wrote that time is nature's way of keeping everything from happening at once. The only way that we, or the universe for that matter, can bear the weight of existence, in other words, is because of the gift of time. Now, we don't always think of time as a gift. Indeed, we often think of it as a commodity, something to be spent or wasted. And yet time is not a commodity that must be spent productively or even wisely. As one preacher has put it, time is a merciful action of God to help us live because we couldn't handle the reality that life is eternal and love is immortal. And this becomes particularly clear when we consider those moments in our lives when we feel as though we are experiencing all of time at once. The moment a child is born. The moment when we lose someone we love. In these moments, everything we have been and everything we will be intersect at one point in time. A point at which existence itself feels like it is almost too much to bear. These moments outside of time permit us to recognize that there is no such thing as wasted time because every moment matters. Mark's account of the resurrection is noteworthy for a few reasons. Perhaps most strikingly, Jesus is conspicuously absent from Mark's resurrection narrative. The women who venture out that early morning are confronted only by the empty tomb and the young man who tells them that Jesus is no longer there. And the women's response is the other unique feature of Mark's resurrection account. The other evangelists mention that the disciples were afraid, yes, but Mark tells us three or four times in the space of just a few verses that the women were gripped with fear. Mark tells us that they fled in terror and amazement from the tomb. Fear is central to Mark's account of the resurrection which leads us to wonder why. Now, the skeptics among us may see Mark's emphasis on fear as evidence of the evangelists' 
lack of confidence in his story. But there is a narrative detail that belies this suggestion. When the women arrive at the tomb, they encounter a young man dressed in a white robe. Careful readers of Mark's gospel will remember that in the evangelist account of Jesus' arrest, a young man wearing nothing but a white robe was following Jesus. As Jesus is taken away, the people around the young man attempt to take hold of him, but they grab only the white robe and he runs away naked. Nakedness is pretty much the worst imaginable condition for a first century Jew. And the fact that this young man was willing to run away naked signifies both the terror he must have felt and the fact that everything was falling apart around him. And so, the reappearance of the young man at the empty tomb, clothed and in his right mind, is an indication that the damage done by the crucifixion and death of Jesus has been undone. Mark's inclusion of this detail is a sign of his confidence that everything has been restored. Every past experience and every future possibility. And I think it is here that we begin to glimpse the reason for the women's fear that early Easter morning. The women who came to the tomb understood that the resurrection had fundamentally reordered the world. Yesterday, a parishioner sent me an article entitled, Recovering the Strangeness of Easter. And that's something that these women understood. The strangeness was why they were afraid. The resurrection was a strange and challenging moment, one when human beings experienced all of time at once. When those three grieving women bore the full weight of existence and were overwhelmed with the knowledge that life is eternal and love is immortal. Because if we take the resurrection seriously, it forces us to reconsider the way we inhabit the world. The undoing of death means that Time is no longer an obstacle to creating or reclaiming meaningful relations with the people around us. With the resurrection, the distinctions between past, present, and future are revealed to be artificial. The resurrection allows us to live in God's eternal present and in God's abiding presence. And this, this is an intimidating prospect. The resurrection may free us from the sting of death, but it also makes us responsible for living a resurrected life. 
we tend to move through life with the assumption that there's a statute of limitations on making amends. We comfort ourselves with the sense that we would reach out and try to heal the hurt, but there's just, there's just too much water under the bridge. And this may very well have been what the women were thinking about on their way to the tomb. Like the other disciples, they had abandoned Jesus. And while they may have been racked by guilt and shame, they could at least avoid the discomfort of admitting their fault. They could at least believe that the spices they had bought were sufficient penance. But when they are told that Jesus has been raised, they recognize that they were still responsible for what they had done. The good news, however, is that the resurrection also means that God's response to our failure God's response to our infidelity is grace and love. The undoing of death means that it is never too late to do the work of reconciliation. The resurrection reveals that there are infinite opportunities for forgiveness and grace because every moment matters. One of the defining aspects of the human experience is regret. We all have moments we wish we could change. Times when we wish we could have behaved differently. And for me, several of these moments took place during my seminary career, believe it or not. When I was in the not-so-affectionate framing of a dear friend, a seminary bro, (laughs) there was a good handful of young male seminarians who were pretty impressed with themselves in my class. Most of us had recently graduated college, and so we were more accustomed to the academic rhythms of seminary than some of our second-career classmates. As such, we didn't have a lot of time or patience for those whose paths to seminary were not quite as straightforward as ours. We kept to ourselves, assuming that we were the only ones who had anything meaningful to offer each other. Not long after we graduated, one of my classmates a second-career seminarian who was married with several children, was diagnosed with ALS. I never spent much time with her in school, in part because we were in different stages of life, but also because I was a seminary bro. Just after succumbing to the disease, Her family published a book she wrote about her experience. The text was full of profound and moving spiritual insights about the depth of God's grace. As I finished the book, I found myself weeping. 
not only because of her tragic and untimely death, but also because I was filled with regret. I had been so wrapped up in myself during seminary that I had never taken the time to know her. It is memories like this that make me long for the promise we hear today. Because the only context in which this loss can be redeemed, the only means by which this can be made right is through the resurrection. I need the resurrection because of my selfishness, my pig-headedness, and my failure to fully appreciate what a gift it is to share this life with the people around me. It is both frightening and thrilling to imagine that not even death can keep us from making things right, can keep God from making things right. Easter is a day that reminds us to make the most of every moment. But it is also a day when we can trust that even the moments we have squandered can be redeemed. Easter is a day when the past, the present, and the future intersect, freeing us to rejoice in the immortality of love. Alleluia, Christ is risen.